Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And oh my God, we're back. back. It's been so long. It's been a while. (laughs) It's been a while. We are very aware of that fact, but we're back. Holy shit, we're back. Oh my God. (laughs) Before we start, for the first time in quite a few months, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos, videos, links, more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles, all one word, at gmail.com. So... How's it going? Good. <laughs> it's going well, you know. Uh, yeah, just, you know, enjoying these last three months off that we didn't intend on taking. But hey, you know. As someone once said, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. For real. For real. Very wise. Yes. Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff's happened. Like, you know, a lot of Beatly stuff. Just so you guys know, like Eric and I do keep up with our Beatles fandom, you know. So we've still been obsessing over all this crazy crap that's been going down. Um, We're going to go over a couple of our greatest hits from the past couple of months (laughs) (laughs) that are probably still thinking about them, too. So we'll talk about them. A couple of our big thrills. Yes. One of which was, of course, Bruce McMouse. Oh, my God. That was okay. That was January. So it was a while ago. But time flies. Right. We both had the chance to see the Bruce McMouse show in our respective cities live in theaters back in January. And Allison, what is the Bruce McMouse show? Well, Erica, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Let me just tell you, The Bruce McMouse Show is a previously never-before-seen film that tells the story of how Paul McCartney and Wings came to meet the imitable impresario Bruce McMouse. Part concert film, part animated feature, The Bruce McMouse Show features footage from the Wings 1972 European tour combined with the animated scenes that introduce a family of mice living under the stage. As it progresses, the Wings play songs, the mice basically kind of scheme to be in the show. Bruce McMouse tries to fulfill his dream. He has two teenage mice children, one which is played by Paul, which is bizarre. Also a little bit racially odd. Yeah, a little odd. It, It was right in that sort of minute, actually, you know, longer than a minute, that Paul was super obsessed with, like, becoming Jamaican himself like yeah. is it right that like sea moon pocket so the teenage mouse boy is like Jamaican I don't I don't know what the I think hell so his, his father is pretty <laughs> old school British and his brother's like a little nerd so they, whatever it was really fun the wings footage is really cool because it's like got the wings band sort of interacting with this like cartoon mouse people and I you know we obviously love a Linda McCartney moment she's great you can actually see that she plays a lot better than people said she did yeah and they do fucking seaside woman hello I know it was great this was a promotional video or was supposed to be a promotional video for Red Rose Speedway which is why Mm -hmm. it came out now because it was with the Red Rose Speedway box that they came out in last year you really get this long historical record of what early wings was like and they are so much better than their reputation might lead you to believe. Yeah, especially at that point. Like, of course, you know, they released like Wings Over America, Wings Over Europe, like those great live albums. But I, yeah, I mean, this was a really interesting snapshot and it really just made me so sad that we missed this. I know. <laughs> like, I would have loved to seen this incarnation of Wings, really kind of the prime lineup, I think, of Wings. The cartoon part is a little, it's very like, 
very much Paul, though. Obviously, Paul's done a lot of animated stuff over the years, but it's fun. And it doesn't detract from the live performance arc either. And you kind of forget about it because it, it goes for a while with the Wings concert. And then there's this little mouse under the concert stage vignette. And then eventually the mice come up and you get to see them interact with Wings. It's very cute. It's definitely worth a watch if you've never seen it. And the reason we're talking about something we saw in January now is because just a couple of days ago, the PaulMcCartney.com site announced that this is now available for download on iTunes. So if you didn't get the chance to see it in the theaters, check it out. It's a lot of fun. If nothing else, to see Henry McCullough's hair. Oh, epic. Wow. Okay. Epic yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Also, if we're talking about filmy type things, one thing that we didn't get to talk about during our hiatus is that Let It Be is going to be reconfigured or at least re-released thanks to Peter Jackson in time for the 50th anniversary, which this is kind of cool. I mean, I don't know. I have so many mixed feelings about this because I know Paul's going to be involved, which makes me nervous. I just, I hate when band members get their mitts into this kind of thing. Like they are too close to it. And Paul is a big fan sometimes when he feels like it of revisionist history. So I don't know. But I'm excited for people who've never seen Let It Be. And I know that's a lot of people because it's not available. And he's got, I think, 155 hours of footage that we've never seen. <sighs> Jesus, release it all. I just want the whole, just the uncut. Just let me sit right. in front of that thing. But Peter Jackson, who's the director, I mean, he did the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And he recently did something that gives me a lot of hope for this. He did this film called They Shall Not Grow Old. Oh, I I wanted to see that the World War One, right? Yeah, what it was was he found all of this archival World War One footage and he put it together to tell the story of a day in the life of a soldier in World War One as he went through the whole war. And they made the films like you know older films because they were hand cranked. They they're never in real time, so he sped them to the right speed and then they colorized portions of it in a very tasteful way and they also vocalized portions of it yeah i saw that in the trailer i thought that was so interesting did you see it i saw it yeah i saw it in 3d it It was incredible and he's one of these obsessive guys like he's got a whole room full of like world war one costumes and stuff just sitting in his house Wow, what the the hell? He's obsessed. (laughs) That's so weird. So if he's as obsessed with the Beatles as he was with this, and as he was with the making of the Lord of the Rings films, then I trust him to really be true to the material. I really hope so. I mean, a lot of people, their issue with Let It Be is it could skew two ways. You know, it's like kind of a choose your own adventure because you can tell a story of like a band who fucking hates each other or you can tell the story that like, you know, oh, they really just got along. They were like, it was just like old times in the studio. And it's like, I, I don't know. We'll probably do an episode on this closer to the anniversary, but it's like the truth has to lie somewhere between it. I don't know. I, it makes me nervous. I'm not nervous at all about Peter Jackson. I think that'll be great. But just, I, yeah, I'm just nervous about what they're going to do with this. Well, that's why they have to release all 155 hours. Let us make our own conclusion. Make your own, let it be. That would be perfect. Oh, yes. This is a good idea. This is a million dollar idea. I think so. Right here. (laughs) Well, you know what? We're going to have an insane year in the theater because I'm sure by now everybody's seen the trailer for this yesterday movie about a singer who probably bumps his head or some shit, some trope, but uh, wakes up in the world, has never heard Beatles songs. So he sort of adopts them as his own. And I'm excited personally. I am too. I think it looks so 
funny. And it's just such an interesting revisionist history. I mean, the world without the Beatles. Part of me, well, I don't know why I'm on my like skeptical bandwagon today, but I know that Ed Sheeran, for example, is in the movie. And it sort of like makes me go, oh, well, there'd be no Ed Sheeran if there weren't a Beatles, you know, or there wouldn't be this song or there wouldn't be that song. But, you know, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt and just not be a curmudgeon about it. You've got to <laughs> suspend disbelief when they talk about how awesome Coldplay is. Obviously, we wouldn't have Coldplay without the Beatles. But we just have to pretend that there was something else that filled some kind of void that wasn't quite the Beatles, but enough to make Coldplay happen. Yeah, unfortunately. Sorry, Coldplay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, so I'm excited to see that. That'll be good. And there's a um, point at the end of the trailer where two pairs oh, of feet yeah. show up, one barefoot, one in black dress shoes. And I think Paul and Ringo might be in this movie. Like the real... Yeah. They themselves? I think so, because it's a talk show thing. And whoever the host was said, like, there are two men. Yeah, I think it might have been James Corden. And he said, there are two men who claim to have written the songs. Oh, fuck. If it's literally Paul and Ringo, that's going to be insane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to see how they treat that. Yeah. In other news, (laughs) something else from earlier in the year that's coming out a little later in the year, Paul McCartney is publishing his first picture book for kids called Hey Grand Dude. Mm. Yep, this is a thing that's happening and we're all just going to have to accept it. <laughs> it looks cute. It's cute. It's cute, but it's just very Paul. Hey Grand Dude. I mean, good for Paul. Grand Dude has four grandkids. And they take colorful adventures, and they ride flying fish, they dodge stampedes, and they escape avalanches. And it looks like Grand Dude plays the guitar, too. Yeah, Grand Dude on the cover looks like every old hippie, the sort of like baby boomer with grandchildren. Does Paul make his grandkids call him Grand Dude? Should we start that rumor? Oh, yeah. I've seen pictures of him with his, his iPhone and his case, I think is his grandkids. That's super cute. And super like Midwestern grandpa of Paul McCartney. I'm down with that. That's cute. This comes out in September and we'll be looking forward to it. And just briefly touching on something that Eric and I have very mixed feels about. Stella came out with a sort of Beatle influence collection. I don't know. I just, uh, it's not, it's not my favorite. Yeah, this is some of the ugliest stuff I think I've ever seen. I'm sorry. I can't handle it. The sweater with Ringo's face might be my favorite. Actually, me too. I think that kind of artwork from the Yellow Submarine film kind of works well with that. But like, there's like a trench coat full of like patches, right? And it's not, I just, oh, I don't like it. I don't like it either. And I like a lot of Stella stuff. Yeah, me too. It's weird. It's very un-Stella, I think. If you like it, go buy it. It's probably sold out by now. Probably thousands of dollars. But anyway, interesting thing from the past year. Yay. Past life. Our hiatus. Long hiatus. We won't do it again, I promise. We won't. But we are coming back with some really exciting news. So we're so stoked to officially announce we, Erica and I, are going to be guests at the Beatles at the Ridge Festival, September 20th and 21st in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. And we cannot fucking wait. This is going to be so cool. This is a small two-day festival in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. And why Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, you ask? Why, Erica? Why Walnut Ridge, Arkansas? (laughs) There is a very specific Beatles-related story that happened there. In 1964, September 18th through 20th, so just around the time of the festival, the Beatles took a break from their tour and were celebrating Brian's birthday. 
by going to Pickman Ranch, which was a dude ranch in Alton, Missouri. Walnut Ridge, Arkansas was the closest airport to the ranch at the time, so their plan was to arrive there secretly and then depart the following Sunday also secretly. But Beatles fans, obviously. Word spread quickly around the town, especially among the teenagers, and by the morning of Sunday, September 20th, there were, of course, hundreds of Beatles fans there to greet the Beatles. This big Beatles event happened to this little town, and because of it, they have a two-day festival, which is full of guests and crafts and a street fair and food, and there's a symposium. We'll be doing a live podcast there. It'll be very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So excited. Yeah. And this year, the theme is Beatles collectibles and memorabilia. I'm super interested to see like what people are going to bring and talk about. And we'll be in very good company because other guests include Beatles author Jim Birkenstadt, who's great. And Jude Kessler, who has been on our show before. Go check her out. She was talking to us about John Lennon's Sinner or Saint when she was here. Um, And she's also one of the organizers of the festival. So Jude is one of those people who never half-asses everything. She whole-asses everything. And there could be no more capable hands than Jude Kessler for this. So I can, I'm so excited. I can't wait. Me too. This is my first time at the Ridge and already, already feels so welcome and I'm so excited and it sounds like such a fun little family. So if you've never been to Arkansas, I've never been to Arkansas. Me either. I, I'm excited. I, uh, I think I'm going to spend a couple days in Memphis before the fest. And we've heard all good things about it. Guests who have been there before couldn't stop raving. We can't wait. Yay, September, September 20th, 21st. Yay, hope you can come, especially if you're in that part of the country and it's hard to get to one of the other big festivals that are in the north. One more announcement before we hit on a little bit more news from the present day. <laughs> We're going to fast forward to today, present day, yes. We are doing another edition of our Beatles Book Club, hashtag Beatles Book Club, and we are reading A Cellar Full of Noise by Brian Epstein. You may remember that we announced this on our last show, but of course, again, hiatus, hashtag hiatus gate. So we're restarting this. So pick up Cellar Full of Noise. It's kind of a difficult one to find sometimes, but there are copies on eBay. I get you know, notified every day because I may or may not have an eBay alert for Brian Epstein set up. Neither will confirm nor deny. But uh, yeah, there are copies floating around out there. And I think it's on Kindle. I just looked it up. It's actually on sale for $3.60 on Kindle Ooh. right now. So deal. Yeah, we'll put a link to it on our socials, but pick it up and read along with us. We'll be doing that in May. And if you're unfamiliar with it, the very too long didn't read version is it's Brian's sort of ghostwritten by Derek Taylor account of the Beatles very, very early years and his life and sort of his autobiography. Take it with a grain of salt and we'll go into that a little bit more, but it's a really interesting read and it's definitely a must read for all Beatles fans, I would say. For sure. Let us know too. If you're going to read it, let us know. Hashtag Beatles Book Club. We would love to know who's reading along with us. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And moving right along to news here, because it's kind of related. We've been talking a lot about Liverpool and how they're like, you know, there's a new Beatles museum on Matthew Street that Rogue Best kind of spearheaded. Here's some really shitty news. Okay, so the Grapes Pub in Liverpool, which is also on Matthew Street. And if you've you've ever been there, it's a real divey sort of like dumpy place, but it feels very authentic to that period of the Beatles when they would have been there just like drinking after a a gig at the Cavern or whatever. Um, 
it got renovated and I'm very upset about it. It looks like they sort of tried to swank it up a little bit, which totally defeats the whole purpose. I think they replaced the actual booth where there was a famous photograph of like the Teddy Boys Beatles sitting there drinking and they sort of like Beatleified it more, which just makes me want to die. I'm not in love with it. The... <laughs> The thing I loved about it so much is like you go in there and it's all drunk Liverpudlians doing like karaoke and it's like very much like still a Liverpool hang. And I'm really hoping that won't drive away the like locals who go there to have a pint of Guinness. When they make it more touristy, they make it less authentic. Yeah. That takes us away from what I would go to Liverpool to see. Yeah, 100%. And it was so perfect. It was like perfection before. It was exactly what you would want. Mm. <sighs> my cries anyway all right in other news last week somebody found video footage of the beatles only live top of the pops appearance somebody in mexico had an 11 second silent clip from the beatles miming along to paperback writer during a 1966 appearance on top of the pops that's fucking awesome see we always say there's more shit out there like check your grandparents closets (laughs) There's crap everywhere. There is. And I think somebody's doing actually. Oh, God. Have you seen this? I think it was Apple or some film company. Maybe it's in conjunction with Let It Be. There's been a call out for people to go look in their attics for pictures and see if they can find any Beatles footage that they may have missed along the way. Good. Yeah. Unearth that shit. That's definitely a very important call. I think now is the time. Yes. And how crazy, like, people just taped the TV because that's all you could do. Thank God they did. There must be so many more out there. There have to be. Well, some really sad news this week. I don't know if many of our listeners, and we have to definitely do a proper Liverpool, like, Mersey Beat episode, but many of our listeners are familiar with the band called The Big Three, which came up before The Beatles, actually. The Beatles gave The Big Three a lot of credit for kind of uh, establishing the Mersey Beat sound and sort of giving them a run for their money in a lot of ways. The Big Three were considered to be like a hard-driving rock band um, on the Liverpool scene and got interest from Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein managed them for a time, were definitely a huge, huge deal in Liverpool. And sadly, uh, Johnny Hutchison, Hutch, uh, they all had like certain names. One was Gus, Johnny was Hutch, passed away last week. The Cavern Club posted this really beautiful thing on their page. For many, Johnny and his band, The Big Three, defined the Cavern sound. He had attended International Beatle Week a number of times over the last few years and always had many great stories and memories to share. Many of his time filling in on drums for the Beatles, which he did also in Hamburg for a few shows, I believe. And another great Mersey Beat legend has left the stage. Oh, our sincere condolences to Johnny's family and friends. R.I.P. Hutch. Oh, that's so sad. I know. I always thought he was a really interesting character. Also, the big three, if you want to see a film version of them, are in the ITV TV movie, Scylla. Because everything goes back to that fucking miniseries that Eric and I are obsessed with. But, it kind of does. Uh, but yeah, the big three are definitely in that. And it's funny, they're going to appear later in the episode in our favorite things, sadly. And yeah, he, he was definitely one of those people who uh, <laughs> could be quite salty, but I think for good reason. I think a lot of those Mercy Beat guys should be salty. <laughs> oh, yeah. They have a right to be, you know. Another person has left who was there and, and witnessed it all, and it's just very sad. They had a single, right? They had one single of some other guy, I think. It's really hard rock and really good. Yeah, he was a kick-ass drummer, and they were kick-ass musicians. And they were actually, all three of them were alive. Like, I think he's the first one to go, which is just fucking tragic. You know, it's not, we don't have many full combos anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Boo. Boo. 
I'm afraid that our weekend Beatles history doesn't get much more cheerful. And I'm this whole episode is taking a fucking morbid turn right now. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. Welcome back. We didn't plan this, but you know, how goes this is what we're doing. On April 17th, 1998, Linda McCartney tragically dies in the McCartney home in Arizona after a long battle with breast cancer. Mm. I don't have much more to say about that right now. I just, it's still very upsetting to me. I still remember it. Um, I do too, yeah. Dearly missed. Yes. And we'll be paying tribute to her and her badass feminism next episode. So very I will have, have a lot to say about Linda then. But all I can say, it's a very sad anniversary and 21 years have gone by. And where's the time gone? And we miss you, Linda. Yeah. 21 years. It's fucked up. I know. It's fucked. Well, also, literally a week before she died, but, you know, many years before, 1962, April 10th, Stu Sutcliffe died. He is our subject today. This is a great segue, a really weird segue. But kind of the reason why we're doing this is the timing worked out, but our feature today is uh, we're talking about Sue Sutcliffe and uh, his death. And, you know, was he murdered? We'll find out. <laughs> Welcome back. Let's get into talking about some Stu Sutcliffe goodness and badness and weirdness and uh, anyway, uh, for those of you who don't know, because Stu was sort of a very early player in the Beatles history and a very important people debate whether he could have been the, called the fifth Beatle. And I think in a lot of ways, technically, he was the fifth Beatle because he was the fifth member of the Beatles from May 1960 to July 61. We could go on forever about Stu and his life and his art. He packed so much into that his 21 years. It's insane. And we will do, we should do, his own episode about Stu and his life. So we're going to give you just a quick cliff notes of him here because we want to talk about his death. Hooray. The series around that. So Stu was born in, actually in Edinburgh, which I didn't realize until we started working on this episode. But raised in Liverpool, obviously. He went to the Liverpool College of Art, where he met John Lennon. And John obviously had a lot of artistic skills. And Stu was an insanely talented painter, a visual artist. And he helped John improve his own skills. They were very close, John and Stu. Oh. Yeah, very, very close. You think of like Lennon McCartney, but really it was Lennon and Sutcliffe, mm-hmm. like hardcore. Paul McCartney knew that too. He sure did. Yeah, he was reportedly very jealous of their relationship. Stuff fits. John would later say, you know, I looked up to Stu. I depended on him to tell me the truth. Stu would tell me if something was good and I believe him. We were awful to him sometimes, especially Paul. Paul was always picking on him. And I used to explain afterwards that we didn't dislike him, really. So Paul was always taking the piss out of poor Stu. Oh, Stu, Stu seems so sensitive, too. He pro- That probably bothered him. He was. He seemed like a very, like, sensitive, dark young man. Like, I picture him to be very emo, but maybe he wasn't. Maybe it was just the hair. <laughs> hair and the glass. Like, he always wore these Ray-Bans on stage. And he had this very, like sleek like existential which they would call you know call it in hamburg but existential sort of style with the black like black clothes and yeah he was he was pretty hot like oh my god yeah (laughs) to be honest uh Stu was very like fresh-faced young guy very attractive he was the one that introduced them to astrid and 
Klaus Foreman and the people who eventually molded their style. Yeah, exactly. He was instrumental. In fact, Stu came up with the name Beatles because they were sort of spitballing ideas and they were both huge fans of Buddy Holly's Crickets. Um, and so Stu with John came up with that. Uh, I can credit him with that, among many other things. It, John and Stu also shared a flat together and you can still go there um, in Gambier Terrace, number three Gambier Terrace. Uh, and it was pretty much like a swing of bachelor pad, which you can imagine. Oh, my God. I'm sure. Have you been? I haven't. I haven't been past there, which is crazy, but someday. <laughs> Next time, because you're not going to go to the grapes, so you can use that time. <sighs> I will still get drunk at the grapes. It's my duty. <laughs> yeah, so Stu, one fine day in Liverpool, Stu sold one of his paintings for 65 pounds, and John and Paul, by this time, they are in a band together. They're, uh, I believe maybe this is Silver Beetle's time. They persuaded him to buy a bass with his 65 pounds and join the Silver Beetles. Boo. Boo? Why are you boo? I mean, I know that it was great in Beatles history, but that was a lot of money for Stu, and they they kind of pushed him into buying that bass. From the stories I've heard, he didn't really want to do that. Yeah, Stu wasn't a musician. He did have musical training growing up, but he never played bass. And I'm sure it was just one of those things where John was like, I want my best friend in the band. And Paul was like, okay. And then they just needled him until he did it. John wanted him there for the friendship. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like John was good at that. He did that a lot in his life. So Stu goes out and he buys a Hofner president model, which could be argued that he inspired Paul's signature violin bass. After Stu quit the Beatles in 61, Paul actually got his Stu's bass because Stu was like, I don't need this shit anymore. But he he wouldn't let Paul restring his bass. So Paul had to learn to play it right handed, which is very funny. Um, Yeah, right. And so Stu actually also doubled as their booking agent before Alan Williams, their first manager and agent, took over. That's interesting. Um, I never knew that about Stu. I didn't either. Yeah, that was that was cool. So he must have had some sort of investment in the band beyond just sort of being like, all right, whatever, I'll just fucking play this. Because, you know, he wasn't a great bass player, but he brought a lot of like what we're talking about, the style, this panache to the group with his look. However, he had some downsides because people have actually said he cost the Beatles work because he was the weak link. Like people were literally like, we're not going to book you because your bass player sucks. But he did up the sex appeal. And it is said that he used to play with his back to the audience in this really sexy, mysterious way. But it was really because he couldn't play and he didn't want people to see. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, Pete Best has said that that's all like a bunch of horseshit that he never did play with his back to the stage. But I don't know. Who do you believe at this point? Really, it's like a war of, like, words, you know? Yeah. But he did do a signature tune on stage, which uh, was Love Me Tender. And I am very curious, maybe if you've heard of this floating around on the internet, like tweeted us or email us, but there's supposedly a recording out there of Stu, but I know there's also a lot of like fake Love Me Tender Stu recordings. So I don't know if that's actually a thing. I'd love to find that. Right? I don't think we have anything of Stu singing, right? Not that I've ever heard, no. Mm -mm. No, if you have something, let us know. Go look in your parents' attics. (laughs) Find the Stu Sutcliffe recording and yeah, make a million dollars. There you go. And give us some. So while Stu is in the group, the Beatles, as Erica was saying, they go to Hamburg, Germany. And the Hamburg years, talk about Stu Sutcliffe's life. Hamburg years are way too much to go through in this little baby episode. (laughs) 
We'll do Hamburg one other day. 100%, 100%. But too long didn't read. The Beatles go to Hamburg. Uh, They performed sporadically and for extended periods of time in Hamburg, Germany from August 1960 to December 1962. And really, that was where they became a band. Like, they really cut their chops there. They played multiple shows a day. They were living in, like, shitholes. It was really a grueling pace. They were shuttled around different clubs. They ascended through the ranks. Like, the Beatles cut their chops 100% in Hamburg. During this time, Stu quits the band. He quits the band July 61. He's like, nah, I'm not going to go with you because I've met Astrid Kircher, local photographer who had become a regular at the Beatles shows, one of their best friends, brought in Klaus Vormann to the fold. And Stu and Astrid actually got engaged a few months after meeting, which I want to sort of wag my finger and be like, you kids, because Stu's like fucking 20 years old and they'd only known each other for a few months. But okay, whatever. True love. That's the Beatles story. Everything goes this rapid, rapid pace. (laughs) That's so true. It fits in perfectly with like just everything. Yeah. Why would they take their time? Nope. No way. Um, yeah, exactly. So he decides to stay in Hamburg with her and he moves in with her and her mom. And he pursues his art full time. He even got a scholarship to local art school, which is great. Mm. And then, of course, you know, the Beatles, Paul takes over on bass. Um, and now we've got most of the lineup. We don't have Ringo yet, but we have most of the lineup. Fun fact, when Stu decided to stay back in Hamburg, Paul took over on bass, the instrument nobody wanted. So Paul took it over and then Paul became, oh, I don't know, one of the greatest and most innovative bass players of all time. Yeah, 100%. 100%. The Beatles story, once again, being crazy. So now we're going to skip ahead a little bit because, again, Stu, I don't want to say this too many times, but I can't say it enough. He was only 21 when he died. So it's like we're going to skip ahead very far in his life, which is like not even a year. So we're going to talk about Stu's death. And but first of all, why are we doing this? Why are we talking about Stu's death? you know, and not his life. Uh, Eric and I fucking love true crime. Yep. And a lot of y'all probably do too. And we got to thinking, is there any true crime in the Beatles story? And in my mind, the first thing that sprung to the forefront was Stu's death. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of other incidents. And actually, there are a few I'm thinking of from Hamburg that actually might be considered true crime. Maybe not murder, but definitely criminal that we could cover. Paul and Pete did get arrested, but that isn't exactly a true crime story, burning a condom on a wall. But still. Yeah, that was actually the thing I thought. <laughs> it was like those boys and they're lighting a condom on fire. Gross. There we go. <laughs> I know, as as you do, <laughs> as one does. But yeah, we would love to try to make this a regular, regular feature on the podcast. So if you have any ideas for Beatles true crime incidents that you want us to investigate or talk about, let us know. And that would be super fun. So let's go back to Stu here. So Stu, after he quits the Beatles, he began having these like excruciating headaches. And they included you know, things like blackouts and light phantasma. And, and if you've ever had a migraine, it's like and Erica and I both yep. like migraine central. It's like the worst fucking migraines of your life. Like he couldn't even function. He would collapse. He would at some points he was blind, almost like a crippling illness. One day in the winter of 62, he collapsed after a particularly bad episode. But he went to the doctor, right? Finally, yeah. But in Germany, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. They couldn't find anything. So they told him he should go back to Liverpool for more tests, but Stu ignored that advice. Good job, Stu. Mm. <laughs> Love is blind. Yeah. Love is blind. I know he's like, oh, there's a great line. <laughs> I'm just thinking of this in the, the NBC biopic in his life, the John Lennon story, oh my God. where Stu is like suffering from one of his episodes. 
And Astrid's like, Stuart, Stuart, you have to go to the doctor, Stuart. I can't do a German accent. Um, <laughs> but he looks up at her and he's like, you're my doctor. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fucking love that movie. It's epic. <sighs> you're my doctor. So that was Stu ignoring his doctor's advice, pretty much. Over the next few months, Stu gets worse and worse. He even stopped going to class, which is mm. really sad because, you know, obviously he's like living his best life yeah. in art school. So he ended up spending most of his time in bed because he was temporarily blinded. And according to his sister Pauline, um, his sketches and his journals around this time were filled with morbid and dark imagery and words like torment and explode and the bloody brain and oh that kind God. of stuff. And Astrid has said that his headaches were violent, like he would have bits when he had these headaches. Ugh. And so I know it sounds horrible. And so finally, on April 10th, 1962, he collapsed again. Astrid was in the photography studio when it happened. Some people say she was there, but she has said she's, she was at her studio. So whatever. So her mother called her and called an ambulance. And by the time she got there, she was she got there in time to go with Sue in the ambulance to the hospital. But he died on the way to the hospital. Mm. Yeah. And the coroner's report stated that Stu died of a cerebral hemorrhage or bleeding in the brain. So that was his official cause of death. Very sad. So sad. He's so young. He was so multi-talented. I know. He could have done some big fucking things, like way separate from the Beatles. But, you know, you think about later, like Klaus Mormon and his contributions to the Beatles artistically, like would Stewart have been designing their album covers? I could see him designing like the Apple logo later. Yeah, probably. I mean, Klaus designed Revolver. Yeah. I don't know. You could, we could speculate all day long about what could have been, but definitely he would have been a mover and shaker. So here's the thing about Stewart's death. On the surface, and according to the coroner, there's nothing suspicious. He unfortunately had this bleeding in the brain that killed him. But if you go by history and go by a lot of theories that surround Stewart's death, he might have been actually murdered. What? Which is crazy. So we're going to go through the theories. We have four theories here. And some of them lead into others. But the reason why these are here is he was only 21. You know, mm -hmm. why would he, he was otherwise a healthy kid, you know, and no really indication of this at all. And so the first theory that people have is a brain aneurysm. And this is probably not a theory at all. This is probably actually what killed Stu. But it's still considered a theory because it's often referred to as the only thing. So this is out of the blue, wasn't a prior incident, and he just happened to have it. So for that reason, let's assume this is true, uh, but it could work in tandem with another theory. Theory number two, fall down the stairs. And I actually was unfamiliar with this, but it's been around for a while. Um, oh. So yeah, so shortly before his death, Stu apparently fell down the attic stairs. He was living in the attic of the Kircher house. That's where he had his studio. And that's where I believe some of the photos of the Beatles were taken. Oh, yeah, those really artistic yeah. half-lit photos. Yeah, I believe that's where those were taken. So he apparently fell down the stairs. And that was corroborated, according to Bill Harry, the journalist Bill Harry, that corroborated by Stu's mother, Millie, who thought that might be the cause. Um, mm -hmm. He... Bill said that he was told about that from Millie herself shortly after it happened, obviously before Stu died. Okay. So that's a theory. A lot of people do buy into the fall down the stairs theory. And really, there's no way to know if that actually happened or not. But Right, especially because he didn't go to the doctor and the brain was right. not exactly, I mean, even today, the brain is still a mystery. Yeah, 
exactly. It's hard to say with that. So theory number three is a gang attacked Stu and beat the shit out of him, which this is very widely acknowledged as a source of Stu's headaches. And also it it appears in every Beatles biopic that Mm -hmm. includes the Stu years. I'm thinking of Backbeat. It's a huge in Backbeat. I think Backbeat starts with it, actually. It's fucking shite, Stu. It's it's, (laughs) fucking... No. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite Backbeat in fucking Ian Hart who plays John Lennon he says it like 30,000 times in the movie but he says it's all dick it's all dick Sue <laughs> <laughs> and it's like what the fuck oh my god I, I love, love it that. it's all shite yeah he loves to say shite too mm-hmm. it's like god and Stephen Dorff is too uh, I love that movie classic classic and Gary Bakewell who played Paul he would later play Paul in the Linda McCartney story oh my god Oh, anyway, I want to watch Backbeat so bad. It's nowhere. I know. I, I almost bought it the other day. Do it. Buy it. Also, I think that if we ever do have a Patreon, we should do commentaries along to biopics. Oh, yes. Good <laughs> idea. I would love to fucking do that. I am so into biopics. That totally speaks to me on a spiritual level. Anyway, so back to Stu getting the shit beat out of him. There are a lot of different accounts of this. The common denominator is that the Beatles were, or Stu alone, were attacked by a gang in either Liverpool or Hamburg. And reasons for this vary. You know, some reports had this because they thought Stu or the Beatles were gay. So they're calling them lots of like homophobic slurs and then they attacked them. Or, you know, thugs were trying to steal their instruments. It could be whatever you want it to be. And then what happened during and after the attack is also super debated. You know, some say that John swooped in to save Stu from these people, or Pete Best fucking paints himself as a hero. Of course mm-hmm, he does. Of course. I mean, God bless Pete, but really. And then Paul apparently was there, but he can't remember. He's like, I can't remember what happened. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like Paul. Super helpful, yeah. right? And I think I've heard a version of this story where it was much later and this was Ringo running onto a bus with his drums. So this story is one of those things that it happened at some time, but it may not necessarily have happened during Stu's tenure. It might might not have happened to Stu. This might have happened to Ringo. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. This is very likely something like this happened, right? Because the Beatles were kind of scrappy. Like they probably did get in fucking fights. John Lennon obviously was super aggressive. He fucking punched, who was it? Uh, Bob Wooler? Yeah, after he, like, made some comment about John and Brian at Paul's 21st birthday party. Like, he was just fucking, like, aggressive. He was aggro. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I could see him getting in some fistfights, and I'm sure this happened. Did it lead to Stu's death? I don't know. I don't know. It's a popular theory. People love to talk about it. And so our final theory, theory number four, is kind of related. And this is the John kicked Stu in the head theory. And this is the one that people hear about, I think, more than anything. Yeah, and it's been kind of bolstered in recent years, in the past 10 years, by Pauline Sutcliffe, Stu's sister. And she she really believes this is what happened because she says she can prove it. So she says his journals and sketchbooks, which we were talking about before with the dark imagery and the, and the words that were like really troubling. That all started after a fight with John around or before October of 61. Pauline says in her book about her brother called The Beatles Shadow, I believe that the cerebral hemorrhage that cost Stuart his life was caused by an injury inflicted by John in a jealous rage. Okay. A postmortem revealed Stuart had a dent in his skull as though from a blow or kick. And a few months earlier, John had viciously kicked my brother in the head in a sustained, unprovoked attack. I, you know, Mm. Pauline, dear Pauline, she also, like, really believes that John and Stu were lovers. So, like, (laughs) 
<laughs> like she is so on board with that. Like she ships that so hard, which is pretty fucked up because that's her brother. But God, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, that's your brother. I don't know. Paul maintains that he and John never got in a fight because when they they did the scene like that in Nowhere Boy where John punched young Paul, he said that was one thing that was totally incorrect because John never hit me in my life. Well, I think that he was even closer to Stu. I mean, I don't know if they had a more aggressive relationship, but I feel like John didn't abuse, you know, he didn't abuse people physically like that, that he was very, very close to. He did obviously hit Cynthia, you know, yes. and he, but I don't think, I, I've never heard of a story of him hitting, you know, violently attacking any of the bandmates, like George, Ringo, Stewart, maybe some of the other Liverpool guys, but never, you know, obviously never Brian. I would argue that John was much closer to Stu and to Paul than he ever was with Cynthia also. Oh, that's, that's I know uh, it's kind of a hot take, but that's how I feel about it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a hot take, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should explore that sometime because that's very interesting. We will. Um, tweet at us if you disagree with Erica or you agree with Erica. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag uh, Cynthia Lennon hot take. No, Yikes. So regardless of whether or not this actually happened, John always sort of blamed himself for Stu's death, um, whether it was his fault or indirectly, like, you know, if he hadn't rescued Stu from a fight quickly enough or something. And so I'm kind of, I'm sort of confused by that because it's like, is he blaming himself because he knows he kicks Stu in the head? Like, I don't know. But I think John was the type of person where he could have probably convinced himself of it because he had just a lot of, like, guilt and baggage. Yeah, and he had so much tragedy in his life. And yeah, I'm sure there was some part of him that was wondering, should I have made him come back to Liverpool? And would that have helped? You know, what, what could I have done? Because they were together so much during the time right before he started getting the headaches. Yeah, exactly. So who can really say it? Like, those are just four theories that sort of are out there in the ether. You can, like, Google them to shit, like any sort of conspiracy theory. And you should. You should do that and figure out what you believe. But if you want to know, you know, so (laughs) insert the Oprah gif, Mm -hmm. what is the truth? And I always (laughs) think of that all the time. And I say that in real life. And people look at me like I'm crazy. Like, like they don't know the gif. Come on. Come on. If you've never seen it, we'll post it. Just to make yeah. sure everybody's seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You should use it all the time. So what really happened to Stu? So it's obviously hard to say with 100% certainty what happened to him or if he was, you know, quote unquote, murdered via a blow to the head, either by thugs or John Lennon. But there is a really interesting piece of information floating around on the internet. It's a medically informed post-mortem that was written by a neuro nurse in 1995. I guess it's a she. They don't really reveal their gender, but uh, we'll just call it a she. Um, she sort of takes the information that we know about with Stu, including the coroner's report, including and his, um, his symptoms, and sort of went through it all and decided what was the most likely cause of Stuart's death. So according to her, The two most likely scenarios are an aneurysm, which we already kind of figured out, or this thing called an AVM, which is arteriovenous malformation. And both of those are congenital deformations or whatever. Instead of, okay, well, now I'm just trying to sound fancy. Um, (laughs) Both of those conditions are present from birth. Uh, You know, they're unrelated to any sort of blow to the head theory or any any sort of external theory. It's, it's like Stu was born with like, you know, weak valves or like sort of a malformation in his brain that made this inevitable. It was going to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the second sort of like disproving the blow to the head theories is the postmortem that was written finds that it would have been impossible, impossible for John to have had anything to do with Stu's death 
since he likely hadn't seen him since Christmas 1961, which is the last time Stu was home before he died. And that leaves a massive gap before Stu's death. He died four months after that. And so the nurse said that if he had had a fight in Hamburg when the Beatles were there or in Liverpool or with John, it's very unlikely that would have been the culprit because Stu hadn't even been a Beatle since the previous July. So that was almost a year before he died. It would have happened way before if that were the cause. Right. But let's say he saw him in Christmas of 1961. And that's end of the year, beginning of the next year, whatever. And when did he start getting headaches? Because he didn't, he didn't die right away. No, he started, actually, it's funny. His mother says that Stu started getting headaches like a year before he died. I don't even know what that would mean. But I think the point of this postmortem thing is like, if that were directly the cause of death, like, sure, if he gets in a fucking fight and gets kicked in the head and he has headaches, that could have been the cause of the headaches. Like the aneurysm could have been totally unrelated to the headaches even. I think the postmortem mentions something about that. But the point is like of this is a, a fight that happened when the Beatles sort of say or falls in the Beatles story or when he was home in, in Liverpool, that couldn't have been the cause because it would have happened way sooner. It wouldn't have taken months and months. It would have taken weeks to kill him. That does make sense. Headaches for a long time. Yeah. And that could have been, again, totally unrelated. Who knows? So the bottom line of this postmortem report is no head trauma causes cerebral bleeding and death that long after an injury. So basically he would have had to die way before that, if that were the cause. So it seems likely that Stuart Sutcliffe was not murdered. But, you know, I don't know. What do you, like, what do you think, Erica? I don't think that he was murdered. I don't, I mean, certainly, I 100% believe that it was never intentional, if anything happened to him, that caused him to have a brain aneurysm. The one thing that you said about his mother saying that he had had headaches over a year sooner, I feel like it was probably... A genetic condition, something that started probably a year ago and it got worse and worse and worse and it just took about a year to really, you know, become fatal. Yeah, that's probably true. I just think it's weird, like, if he had these terrible headaches, like, why nobody else... Why is it only his mother saying, you know, he had these terrible headaches? Like, did Stu never complain about them to John, you know, when they lived together? Maybe they didn't, he didn't have them then or they weren't that bad. But it's weird that he was never like, oh, Jesus Christ, I have this crazy migraine. You know, like, I'm sure standing on stage, maybe that's also why he put his back to the lights. Because I imagine the light sensitivity must have been fucking horrible. Oh, yeah. I agree. I think based on this medical information and, you know, take the postmortem with a grain of salt, too, although it is medical professional, but not somebody who obviously did the autopsy. Right. But I think it's likely the the time, the timing doesn't line up. And I, I believe that, you know, in a general sense. So it's just interesting because it's like at least the gang attacking Stu theory is so prominent and the John kicking Stu in the head. It's like those are definitely Beatles lore, mm-hmm. like for sure. And it's funny if that's like not even the case. And it's sort of more of that like romanticized, you know, form of the Beatles. I think it's actually a real shame for John that that, that was something that was thought of him because I don't believe that he ever would have done that intentionally. Yeah. There were many things about John that were not good and that were true, but to have things that were not true and that bad, that's not good. And he always had such a connection to Stu. Even Yoko said that, you know, even in the 70s when they were married, he mentioned Stu frequently. He's always had that connection. So heartbreaking. They were like really, truly like soulmates, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the way of like a really deep and meaningful friendship like and it's it's so tragic and it you know and john again he was a really burdened person so of course like if he could take the weight of killing Stu on his shoulders sure 
pass it over because that was just the type of person he was. You know, I mean, there's there's a quote out there. I forget from who, but she I think it's a she who said it was saying, you know, the person who really believed that John killed Stu was John. I can imagine that. that. I know. I wish he could have had that sort of consolation in his life to know that, no, John, it wasn't it wasn't you. Even if you like got in a fight with Stuart, it was not. Not you that, that caused this thing to happen. I wonder what would have happened over time had this never happened and he had been around John and Paul much more. You mean if he hadn't died? Right. If he hadn't died, if he had stayed healthy and if he had continued because Paul really was jealous of him and John really had that strong soulmate, you know, brother connection with him that he almost had with Paul, but not really. Not in that yeah. way. I wonder, because, I mean, because Stu did quit the Beatles. You know, he was mm-hmm. out. And he was, like, on another continent, which I'm sure Paul loved. <laughs> <laughs> Paul was probably like, see ya. <laughs> see ya next February, Stuart. Paul was a jealous guy. Mm. <laughs> he was. God, yeah. And then there are stories of, like, when the Beatles found out Stu died because Astrid came to the airport and met them. And contrary to a lot of Beatles biopics, that depict him sort of like breaking down apparently he like broke out laughing when she told him that Stu died like just fucking hysterics like which is just really sad because obviously it's like he has these reactions because he's so like emotionally fucked up you know yeah some people do that it's yeah exactly but it doesn't mean that he (sighs) was yeah he actually he didn't go to the funeral and he didn't send flowers either he was but obviously his lifelong memories of Stu, it was hard for him to handle, but it didn't really expose his true feelings about how he felt, you know, the death. Yeah. And, you know, Stu was on the Sgt. Pepper cover. So they included him, made sure he was there. And it really speaks to, you know, their, their everlasting affection for him, certainly John's, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, bottom line was Stu murdered, probably not, but hey, you know, it's worth talking about because, you know, we sort of work to debunk a Beatles myth, which I'm sure doesn't mean jack shit because it'll still be perpetuated but i can't wait to hear what mark lucen has to say about it oh yeah <laughs> part two come on mark write oh, it God. <laughs> so that's the death of Stuart Sutcliffe. tweet us what you think let us know your thoughts on Stu and his death and all the shit we talked about and feel free to disagree with us yeah and if you have any other conspiracies or true crime related type things that happened in the beatles community again send them over because we will yeah. we will discuss them we will tap into that because when we're not doing this, all we kind of do is listen to true crime podcasts. Like, yeah. I like them so the much time. that I listen to a podcast about true crime podcasts. Just saying. Oh, oh yeah. I think you told, I think I subscribed to that. Crime writers on. That. They're good. Yep. Yep. I just got <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I mean, there's so many. So good. On to our favorite Beatles-related thing of the week to kind of perk up this episode. Erica, what happened this week? This past Saturday was Record Store Day in the United States. I don't know if it's all over the world, but it's definitely in the United States. And that's a day when people come out and they support their local record stores. And when the record companies release special editions or new releases or remastered versions of old releases on on vinyl for you to buy that day. So on Saturday, I went and I found the John Lennon release. It's called Raw Studio Mixes and it was of Imagine. So I've only had it for a couple of days, but I will tell you that I absolutely love it. It's the tracks from Imagine. 
as raw and unmixed and unedited and with no effects as possible. So it's That's amazing. Just John and Phil Spector and Yoko were there and Alan White and the, you know, the other people that were playing with him at the time in, in a studio that was so close to being a home. It wasn't a totally professional studio. It had some elements of home. I think at one point they, you hear somebody say, you know, please be quiet over in the kitchen right before he starts a song. <laughs> so it's definitely like home, but it's so good. Some of these songs don't sound anything like the final tracks that Phil Spector made them into because they took off all the reverb and all of the things that yeah, John wanted to mask about his voice because he didn't right. like it. So you're hearing this raw, emotive John Lennon at this time. And, you know, when he was doing Imagine, when I think he might have been at his most raw and vulnerable when he had Yoko and he was just leaving the Beatles and he had written Imagine and he was on his, you know, Peace Crusades. And so you've got this this snapshot of John at this time and it is so good. If you can find it any left, I would definitely recommend getting this final. And it sounds like this kind of goes hand in hand with that Imagine documentary, the BBC documentary that came out earlier this year or later late last year. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. the, I can't remember what it's called, the sky something. Um Above Us Only Sky, right? Above Us Only Sky, yeah. Yep. So because I remember when you said the kitchen thing, it's like, oh I remember seeing like them sitting in a kitchen like drinking tea before they recorded or something, you know? So that's pretty cool. This is probably an offshoot of the Imagine remastered, the movie, everything that came out last year. And I didn't get the Imagine box set. It's possible that versions of this was in that. But um, this is just one album of just the raw mixes. That's amazing. And I'm sure to hear it on vinyl is, is, is really great. And I will say out of all of them, the most surprising song is Crippled Inside. Oh, really? I love that song. I love it too. And it... It sounds like Paul McCartney's country songs at that time. Oh, weird. It sounds like Country Dreamer. It's got that vibe, <gasps> but it's crippled inside. It's so That's sp- cool. It's so cool. It's my favorite track on, on the album for sure. Definitely oh check gosh. it out. I gotta, I gotta try to pick this up. Uh, what record store did you go to? Generation Records in the Village. New yes. York. Yeah, oh. great. Oh, I love that store. Hidden Gem too. I mean, some of the big ones, like Rough Trade, I called them like, yeah, we have like lines around the block. It's three hours to get in. We got right into Generation. Oh, we had such a good find. Oh, Generation, quick divergence for those of you who live in New York or, or just love record stores. So their sister record store used to be Bleecker Street Records. Um, did you ever go there? I don't think so. It was on Bleecker Street, but then it moved to Fourth Street. And then they had two kitties that I loved so much. Aww. Scumbag the Fat Bastard and <laughs> Kiva. But her name was, we called her Creeper because that's, I don't know why she was called Creeper. But they were the sweetest little babies. And Scumbag was kind of an asshole. But Kiva, she would always be, like come and sit with you and cuddle with you. And I used to carry her around the store. And, aw, and they're both sadly gone now. But um, but yeah, and, and Bleecker Street's gone now. Fuck. It's like, that Oof. was my shit when I lived in New York. But you probably saw in Generation, they have the Bleecker Street Records sign there, uh, the the glowing oh, light yeah. up, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, but that's cool. I'm glad you supported them because they, they are amazing. They are great. I love Record, record Store Day, too. Yeah, so good. I love it. And oh. what are you obsessed with this week? So mine is kind of, uh, I'm half obsessed with this because I've only watched half of it so far. <laughs> <laughs> but Saturday night, I got to check out the new um, Some Other Guys documentary. And this goes back to what we were talking about with, with Hutch and the Big Three. So it's a documentary about the Big Three. Wow. Um, brand new. 
And I got to say, the production value on this is insane. Like, they must have had a budgie because they really kind of did it upright. They talked to everybody you can think of. Obviously, this is when Hutch was alive. So Hutch is in it, um, along with the other two guys. And they talked to Bill Harry. They talked to Frida Kelly, who we all love. Just kind of a lot of people who are there and present in the Liverpool scene. And they go through the history of the big three, like the band's history, but also their sort of context in the Mersey Bee. And also as it relates to the Beatles. So it's the history of the band, yes, but it's also the history of Mersey Beat and the way they fit into the Beatles story and into their larger picture of even rock and roll. There's great quotes from people like Rory Gallagher who talk about how influential they were on his musical career. And so it's really great. Wow. It's worth a ch- it's, yeah, it's worth checking out. I'm not super sure where to get it because my friend sort of had it passed along to him from another friend. But if it's streaming, if you can find a friend in England who's got it, definitely check it out. It's, it's worth filling in the gaps as far as like getting a better context of the Liverpool scene and and you know what really influenced the Beatles as far as their peers because that was the big three. Oh, and Erica, you'll love this. They mm. intersperse clips from Scylla. So Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was just like, oh, my God, that's from Scylla. That's from Scylla. Like they show the Scylla Brian and they show the Scylla Scylla. And yeah, and obviously the big three. And oh, like King so Size cool. Taylor. Oh, and King Size Taylor's in it. And he looks really jacked up now. Anyway. Really? Still King Size. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway. Uh, Who yeah, produced so that's this? My, that's my highlight. I, you know, I don't know because I didn't watch it and didn't get to the credits. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I haven't finished it yet, but. Uh, I just really want to hunt it down. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, I think that leads us to the end of our first episode in forever. Right. Mm. <laughs> Thanks as always for listening to Because of the Beatles. Thank you for sticking with us while we were gone. Uh, as, we won't leave you again. No, we won't. We are back. <laughs> we're back. And as always, subscribe to BC the Beatles on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now, and give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always drop us a line at BC the Beatles, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time here on Because of the Beatles. Bye. Bye.